Hi again, friends, and welcome to our fourth lecture on 1 Peter for the, Can the Candler Foundry course at St. Luke's United Methodist. Uh, once again, uh, my name is Chris Holmes. It's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, as we've moved our way through various passages from 1 Peter, uh, it's been a delight to lead you in this journey. Um, so this week we'll be focusing on 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, and this passage uh, provides what I would call is the, the theological basis for suffering as a Christian. Uh, it offers a particular take on the nature of Christian suffering, suffering that is the result of one's identification with the Christian community or uh, their non-participation in the dominant religious cultural, and political institutions that were surrounding them. This lecture will look very similar to those that I've previously recorded. Uh, I'm adding one uh, piece. I will read the first pa the passage out loud so that you get a sense of, of what it's about and what's in there. Uh, and then uh, I'll do a word about the literary context. How did we get here? Uh, then I'll talk about uh, just a sort of a broad approach to the passage as a whole. Uh, then I'll dive uh, a bit deeper in uh, three, about three issues and then uh, provide some questions for further reflection or discussion. To begin, let me read our passage again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now, who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But if you do suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make a defense to anyone who demands from you in accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. I want to say a brief word, as I have with previous lectures, about the literary context, about how have we gotten to this point in the letter of 1 Peter. Um, the, the previous passage, the, the most immediately uh, preceding passage, uh, uh, 1 Peter 2.11 through 3.12, focuses on Christian conduct in the midst of non-believers. 
And I think the core idea here is 1 Peter 2.12, which talks about conducting yourself honorably among the Gentiles, um, even if or even though they malign you as evildoers, um, so that they may see your good works and glorify God. So that's the, the core. The idea here is that the Christian community in Asia Minor in the first century is a watched community. They are, they are on the radar. People are paying attention. And uh, the author is uh, encouraging them to live honorably, even if that results in adverse consequences. In 217 through, uh, or I'm sorry, 213 through 217, uh, the author talks about accepting every human institution, uh, specifically the uh, institutions of the ruler, um, and uh, that there is a need to exercise uh, discernment in how one uh, regards themselves as a free person in Christ. The, the author says you're free but uh, don't use your freedom as a pretext for evil. So building on that general exhortation to accept every human uh, ruler or every human institution, we get uh, a more specific outline of the, the, the human institutions in question. Uh, in 2.18 through 3.7, we have uh, a discussion of what is known as a household code. It is uh, the rules and the responsibilities or the, the, the ways in which relationships are meant to be maintained uh, in the ancient world. That's what a household code outlined. And so in 2.18 through 25, we see the instructions to slaves um, uh, and masters. In 3, 1 through 6, we see instructions to wives about obeying uh, the authority of their husbands. And then in 3, 7, just one word about husbands honoring uh, and showing consideration to their wives. This then leads into uh, 3, uh, 3, 8 through 12, which is a broader community focus. Um, no longer on institutions or authorities, but how to exist together uh, as a community. And so to ask that question, how did we get here? Or we might ask the question, why does the lectionary not include this in any of the weeks that cover First Peter in this cycle of the lectionary? I think the, the short answer is that the household codes are, are problematic for a number of reasons, um, especially, though, because of what it says to slaves, uh, about slaves accepting uh, violence and suffering that is uh, uh, put on them by unjust or unholy or, or unrighteous um, uh, owners. Uh, that's, that's problematic, as are some of the gender dynamics. And so, what are the major takeaways from this context? Why does that matter as we prepare to focus on our passage today? Um, the first, again, is that this is a, a watched community and that violating these, these institutions, the household code, would be threatening. And so there's a, there's a logic in the ancient world that if you, if you violate these social or human hierarchies, you're also somehow attacking the, the divine and human hierarchy. And so part of the author's exhortation about living with honor among the Gentiles is um, maybe to say not to challenge the institutions. It's a pretty status quo uh, exploration or, or exhortation. Um, and so this then, I think, provides a, a nice segue to 
um, what would count as acceptable suffering? What are the things that you might accept, expect to suffer for as a Christian? And that gets us into our passage uh, for this week. So as we approach the text as a whole, again from 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22, it's important for us to note that the passage itself builds on the quotation of Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, in 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12, um, especially around the emphasis of doing good. There's two main parts to this passage. In verses 13 to 17, we have the explanation and the, the exploration of suffering for good conduct. And then in verses 18 through 22, there is this uh, highlighting of the model of Jesus, that the, the experience of Jesus somehow corresponds to the experience of suffering as a community. But uh, there's, there's also the, the, the example of Christ, as we'll say in a few minutes, sort of uh, almost goes out in its own direction. Um, I wouldn't call it a digression necessarily, um, but the author is clearly trying to balance and include a number of ideas, and it can make interpreting them just a little bit tricky. As we approach this text now to do a bit of a deeper dive, I want to focus on three topics. The first topic is what the author says about suffering, specifically Christian suffering, in verses 13 through 17. Then I want to talk about what the author says about Jesus and the spirits in verses 19 through 20. And then I want to close by focusing on the connections the author makes between, the, between baptism and the flood. So to begin, uh, the exploration of Christian suffering in verses 13 through 17. It opens with a rhetorical question. Uh, generally, people do not harm you if you do good, right? That seems to be the basic premise. And then from that, the author builds on it and says, but if you do suffer for doing what is right, for doing righteous things, um, then you are blessed, that there is this uh, a shift in perspective that is needed. This idea of being blessed in the moment of suffering is likely an allusion to what Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. The, the second part of this passage is the um, uh, the command to not fear um, and do not be intimidated. Um, it seems as though the author is here alluding to Isaiah 8.12. And uh, again, there's, there's the, 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 what matters or the, the sort of the perspective shift that is, is advocated here is um, the object of fear, right? Um, the Christians are not to be afraid of suffering or they're not even to be afraid of those who inflict suffering um, because they know their Lord, right? They, there's this almost uh, a sense of awe or veneration that is uh, entailed. And then uh, a third piece of this instruction concerns uh, giving a defense uh, for the hope that one has. Um, the, the word defense is in Greek apologia. Uh, it's a legal term. But here, it's, it's probably not a formal judicial word in the sense of Christians being brought on trial, but it's more likely uh, a matter of, of, rep, uh, of, of reputation, of the Christians um, uh, living their lives and, and speaking about their lives in an acceptable 
uh, way. It's, it's a matter of guarding the reputation of the Christian community. And the author says that they're specifically to give an account of their hope. That's the nature of their defense. Um, and again, it's important for us to keep in mind what the author has said earlier about hope in this letter. It's, it's not just about the by and by. It's not just about getting into heaven. Rather, it's, it's hope that makes a difference in everyday life. We might say it's a hope that is visible to others or noticeable to others. It is a, a form of hope that it, it is so powerful or persistent that, that others around the Christians want to know more about it, right? That seems to be the substance of the, the hope. And so if we could summarize this section, uh, we would say that responding to suffering, according to 1 Peter 3, um, is about uh, having or gaining proper perception. And this, this happens in three areas. First, it has to do with perception about blessedness. In some of the Old Testament, you'll remember that, that if you experienced hardship, it was a sign that you were cursed by God. And the author, probably channeling the words of Jesus here, says, no, it's actually not the case. That actually you should perceive your suffering for doing right as a sign of your blessedness, as a sign of your chosenness. A second uh, sort of shift in perception is about who is actually in control. Again, this is where the author says, sanctify as Lord in your hearts. It's, it's recognizing that, that God, not circumstances, God, not Roman provincial authorities, that God, not suffering, is Lord. And that is the second shift in perception. A third shift is around long-term consequences or expectations. It's, it's, a, it's a recognition that in the end, God will take care of it. In the end, uh, God has a plan. In the end, God is just and good and merciful. Uh, and, and so those are the, the, the shifts in perception. And the, the final piece about this suffering is I do think it's a specifically Christian form of suffering. Um, it is uh, suffering because of Christian convictions uh, that one uh, is experiencing suffering. And again, it's a noticeable hope. It's something that people can perceive uh, about the Christian community that they, they see. The second topic that I want to dive into just a little bit deeper is about what Jesus says about the spirits in verses 19 through 20. And I'll have to say that these verses, verses 19 through 22, are really difficult to, to understand. In the Greek, um, a number of commentators point this out. And so there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of ways that we can interpret it or understand it. Um, and so we're going to just sort of explore some of those together briefly. First, I, I think it's important to highlight that the logic of, uh, to, to highlight the, the logic of appealing to Jesus as an example, right? Why would the author hold up Jesus at this point? The first is that Christ suffered, the author says, not for doing wrong, but for doing good. He suffered vicariously. He was doing good things for others and he suffered. Um, the second thing, though, is that Christ was vindicated through resurrection. Suffering and death were not the final answer, uh, but he was, he was vindicated. And not only was he vindicated, but Christ was also exalted over all of the disobedient, even these spirits that are in prison. And I'll say more about that in just a second. Um, and that in, in many ways, verses 18 through 20 can provide the whole theological basis 
for Christians who are experiencing suffering uh, through persecution. Um, it is that, that Christ is victorious. Christ is victorious over all of the forces of evil, um, and therefore they will also be victorious. There's this, there's this uh, symbiosis there. So that's the, the, the overall logic and why it makes sense in the context of a, a reflection on Christian suffering. Um, but from there, it gets a little bit trickier, right? Um, uh, there's a number of questions. The questions abound about, um, about these spirits that are imprisoned. And I'm, I, I won't give you all of uh, the possibilities, but I, I can just say that um, there's been a, a long tradition, um, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, um, that this is somehow when Jesus uh, descended into hell and preached the good news or, or preached a message there to those that were in prison, um, in, in hell, if we will. Um, and interpreters disagree about whether that, that is a, a, a preaching of good news, of an invitation to accept God's mercy, um, or if it's uh, more a preaching of judgment, a final judgment. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so that may be a, a possibility. What I would say is there, there seems to be an allusion here to the story of uh, Genesis 6 when the angels come down and they have uh, sexual relations with human women and they produce the giants um, and that these, these angels and or these giants become these disobedient spirits in other Jewish literature, especially a writing known as First Enoch. And so one of the ways that we can inter interpret this is that, that even the most disobedient of characters, even the most uh, God-forsaken, we might say, um, are still in the economy of God, uh, given, a good new, given a good news message. Um, uh, maybe they're offered liberation, right? I, that's one way that we can interpret it. Certainly not the only way. Um, but I love this idea that even those that are confined to prison of their own disobedience are given an invitation to freedom. That, that sounds like good news to me. The third thing I want to touch just briefly on, again, is in uh, verses 21 and 22, uh, the, re the sort of the reflection the author, the author offers about the baptism, about baptism and the flood. Um, and I think that the basic uh, relationship can be sort of stated fairly easily, that the disobedient world uh, is saved through water, right? Uh, there are these eight from within the disobedient world who are saved by getting on that boat. Um, and that uh, salvation comes through water. We could think about this in uh, a restart or a new creation. And the author goes on to say that the, the flood that Noah was active around uh, actually prefigures baptism. And so water in baptism has a saving power. Um, uh, it, it's an appeal to God, the author says, for a good conscience. Um, and uh, again, the, the central thrust I think here is that uh, baptism saves. Baptism is uh, the, the means by which God uh, sort of creates this new community. Uh, we can think of the, the church as a boat uh, in, in uh, the early church. And, and that uh, the baptism saves not because of the water itself, but really from the resurrection of Jesus. That's the, the, the sort of center and, and grounding piece in this reflection. I want to say just a, 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 a quick word about the, the word conscience that is translated in the NRSV. The Greek word here is sun edeseos. It's 
it's, a, it's a word that is used often in the ancient world, um, not as a subjective feeling of guilt or innocence, but rather uh, something like a good and loyal attitude of mind that um, eventuates, that, that produces good behavior. And so it's, it's less like, you know, the Jimmy Cricket on your shoulder, and it's, it's more a, a, a sense of loyalty. It's an attitude of commitment that, that uh, leads to a good life. We might say it's a consciousness of what God wants and, uh, and a willingness to do it. Um, and so I, I think the, the gist of this, the important thing about this, this relationship and the, the idea of conscience uh, here is, is that it, doesn't, it, it claims our, our, our total lives. That baptism is, is fundamentally um, about the reorientation of one's life to the ways of God. And that that's, that's the, the appeal or the agreement for a good conscience is that we are, we are going to be rerouted in our orientation to following in the ways of God and in the paths of God. Let me bring this lesson to a conclusion with just a few questions for you to consider, uh, either in your own in your own journal, or perhaps perhaps with a group of other uh, study members. The first concerns Christian suffering, and I, I think that we've seen suffering in First Peter, and it, it is a specific form of suffering. It's it's persecution. It's social ostracism. It's experiencing uh, suffering because one is a Christian. And so I wonder what you think about, what about the author's talk about Christian suffering uh, that comes from this very specific context can be applied to a more sort of general theology of suffering? And what about these words might not be helpful, right? Um, how might these words be used to address things like the loss of a loved one or physical or mental illness, uh, and, and how might they not really address that at all? The second uh, is, what do you make of the author's teaching about, about uh, the proclamation of Jesus to the imprisoned spirits? What do you make of that? What do you, how do you make sense of that? And what's the, the so what or the why it matters uh, of that teaching to you? What is, the, what is the nugget that that might offer you? A third question is, how does the resurrection of Jesus help you think through the difficulties of life or the brokenness of the world? How does the victory of God through the resurrection of Jesus maybe help you see the brokenness of this world in a new light? And finally, how does this passage give you hope? How does it call you to a life of discipleship? Well, friends, there is a lot more that could be said about this passage from 1 Peter 3. I hope, though, that we've at least scratched the surface and that you will have uh, resources and tools to engage it more on your own and hopefully in a group with others. Thanks, as always, for your time and your attention.